Hello, greetings. We're so glad that you've joined us and we're so glad for your interest in spiritual things. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ where disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. The Hebrew author writes in Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 11, About this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. The Hebrew author here is actually making a type of an aside comment, a parenthetical on the discussion that he has been carrying on for the entire letter and will continue to do so throughout the majority of the rest of it. The letter begins with the Hebrew author describing how God has spoken through his son Jesus and how his son is greater than the angels. And if Jesus is greater than the angels and the word of the angels, uh, which is the law given to Moses, proved firm, then how much more then the greater message of salvation in Jesus in chapter 2. In chapters 3, in the beginning of 4, the Hebrew author establishes how Jesus is greater than Moses. He did not want any of the Hebrew Christians to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, like the Israelites in the wilderness did. And then he went through a deep analysis of Psalm 95, and demonstrating that since God said that he swore in his wrath, that Israel did not enter his rest, and yet Israel did enter Canaan, and Israel did receive the Sabbath, that the true Sabbath is the heavenly rest uh, that yet awaits uh, the faithful and to which they must give diligence if they would like to enter. And that leads in Hebrews 4.13-5.11 through 5, 11, as the beginning of a discussion of how Jesus is the high priest in order of Melchizedek. And it's rooted in Psalms 2 and 1.10. After Hebrews 5.11-6.3, the Hebrew author will continue and primarily focus on that idea of Jesus as a high priest and explain in greater depth what that means. Jesus as the high priest, the priestly role, the temple of 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 the testimony of the last will and testament versus covenant and how both are embodied in Jesus and the fact that Jesus offered himself for our sins. So that's the flow of the letter and in the middle of it we have Hebrews 5, 11 through 6, 3. How are we to understand it? What is the Hebrew author trying to accomplish here? Well, he's lecturing and rebuking the Hebrew Christians, who, if anybody, should know better. Uh, they are the ones who have been Christians the longest. They are the first to hear the word. And so by this time, as he says, they ought to be teachers. But they don't. They're not able to handle it, and so uh, he's having to go back to elementary issues. Elementary issues that he will not actually address in the letter. But he wants to take that moment out to remind the Hebrew Christians of where they are and the difficulties with it because the Hebrew author expects them to mature. And he describes here the process by which the Christian matures. He introduces this metaphor 
in verse 12 and 13. That they need milk, not solid food. Paul and Peter will use the same imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2 and 1 Peter 2 and verse 2, respectively. And in this metaphor, it's talking primarily about the capability of digestion of, its, of his audience. As he said, that the, they need milk, not solid food, because everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And so, that's what he's trying to say. He's using the idea of milk to refer to somebody who needs and can only handle basic instruction and cannot start searching the deeper things that God has made known to us. And this distinction comes in two levels. One level is the level of depth of understanding of the basics. So, for instance, with baptism. There is the basic understanding of baptism, which is it is immersion in water in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, like in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. And yet, there's also uh, a deeper understanding that, that can be appreciated as one grows in the faith. So that would be the milk, the idea that you are baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins. But then, for instance, in Romans 6, the idea that baptism is a death and resurrection. And we put to death the man of sin so we can be raised to walk in newness of life. That's We no longer allow sin to have any control over us because we've died to sin in Jesus. That's more of meat. That's more of a mature understanding. So that's even within basic doctrines. Uh, there is the basic understanding and there is a more developed understanding. Likewise, there's also the, the, the categorization that comes to mind, what we see here in uh, the letter to the Hebrews, which is that it's the type of doctrine itself. So in chapter 6, that's what he does. He lists off all of these elementary doctrines about repentance of dead works and faith toward God, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So these are the things that are basic elements, things that you need to have some understanding of if you're really going to be a Christian. And the rest of the letter is admittedly a bit more maybe esoteric, less directly related to salvation, but uh, it helps deepen our faith, this idea that the Christ is the high priest in the Ormel Melchizedek, uh, the nature of the word, meaning of testament, um, how he ties together all of these passages and reference in the Old Testament, things like that. It's, it's important to keep that in mind, that Lord willing, on the day of judgment, we're not going to be uh, held to the standard of understanding all the nuances in the Hebrew author's argument, uh, that we need to keep these basic things basic and other things deeper. Uh, nevertheless, this metaphor is very appropriate because it helps us understand spiritual development in terms of human development. Uh Babies are designed to drink milk, especially in this age. Uh, milk is what is tolerated. That's when they drink milk as babies. Uh, babies can only stomach that milk and water, and milk provides all the necessary nutrients. If the child does not get the milk, he will, or she will not survive. Uh, likewise, uh, solid food will not provide the nourishment because the body is not yet able to handle it. And that's the same true with, this, with spiritual development. Those who are very young in the faith only understand the milk of the word. They need to build that basic understanding of repentance, baptism, resurrection, judgment, and things like that before they can move on to more complex understandings of things. Uh, if you have a, a newborn Christian and you try to saturate them in the complexities of Revelation, it might uh, permanently cause their faith to... Uh, be stunted or, or or warped, and they may fall away very easily because they were not well grounded uh, in what they needed to know. If somebody tried to feed them solid food long before they were ready for it.
On the other hand, as a child grows, milk alone does not stimulate development. If a small child only consumes milk as they get older and older, that child's growth is going to uh, collapse, the child will atrophy, the child will likely die. And the same is true with Christians in the faith. As Christians grow and develop, milk alone will not stimulate growth. They need to move on to solid food, move on to that which is meat, uh, a more robust understanding, moving on to uh, matters of, of maturity. But yet, we can, perhaps on a bit of an anachronistic way, understand that even to this day, especially in American culture, people still drink milk. Uh, milk is never removed from the diet. And even though Christians may move on from a diet of pure spiritual milk and start consuming meat, it is not as if returning to the basics, uh, to again explore the basics of the faith is, is harmful. Uh, in fact, it can be very beneficial. That's what Peter is trying to do in his second letter, is remind them of many of the basic elemental truths of the faith. Uh, we are always in need to be constantly refreshed in our minds and reminded of the basic things. But it's just by way of reminder the idea is that we have moved on to more mature things, that we have grown in our understanding, and we're continuing to grow in our understanding, and that's not going to be well suited if we're only and ever returning back to very basic ideas. Then in verse 14, we have the Bible's definition about development and maturity. If you want to know what does it look like to be a mature Christian, God has told you. It is to be one who has your powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what it means to be mature. And therefore, we do well to take a moment to examine the different parts of that statement. To begin with, the idea of having the powers of discernment trained. Now, it's one of those just logical necessities. If training is necessary, then it's, it's impossible for the thing to be automatically true. So if we need to... Uh, train our powers of discernment. It means our powers of discernment are not automatically accurate. Now, what is this power of discernment? Well, it's the mind, certainly, but most of it is what we would call the conscience. And a lot of people rely on conscience to guide them. That if the conscience is clear in regards to a behavior, that's what they're going to do. If it's not clear, they may feel guilt if they do it or they avoid doing the action at all. We need to be careful with conscience because conscience has its place. But we have that example of Paul that reminds us about the difficulties of conscience. In Acts 23 and verse 1, before the Sanhedrin, Paul affirms that he has acted in good conscience till that day. And he gets smacked for it, but that's okay. In 1 Timothy 1, though, we learn that he uh, blasphemed, persecuted the church. He laments that, that he's the chiefest of sinners, uh, and that, that Christ through him would show his great mercy. Uh, so how is it possible for Paul to have been the greatest sinner and yet acted in a clean conscience? Well, it's because he thought that what he was doing was good and right, even though it was actually wrong and evil. And so our conscience can lead us astray if we do not properly train it. That's why it's good to remember uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and in verse 5, uh, Paul tells Timothy that the aim of our charge, the aim of the charge of preaching and ministry, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so, love needs to flow from this good conscience. Uh, heart and faith are other elements as well, but that conscience 
needs to be properly developed. And so what the conscience will discern in somebody who is a mature Christian is what the will of God is in that circumstance. And we can say that because a decent level of maturity means that your conscience has been trained to generally align with the Word of God. There are areas in which uh, that could be uh, made better, always, uh, but you can reach the point where, in general, uh, when you're doing what you're supposed to do and what God has commended, you recognize it and you understand what is sin. And if you end up doing it, you feel the guilt because you know you shouldn't be doing it. But in the end, it's the Word of God that must help us train that conscience in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, that we're to apply ourselves to handle this word of truth rightly. Uh, it is the basis upon which we are equipped to do any good work in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It certainly has its place. And yet, the Hebrew author, when he says how this conscience, uh, or this powers of the sermon are trained, it's not, th it's through constant practice. Constant practice. Uh, one of the big problems in religion is that there are a lot more professors, those who profess truth, than actors, those who actually do it. Uh, lots of people in our culture profess to be Christians, but they're not actually doing what Jesus tells them to do. They are not actively, fully devoted to manifesting the fruit of the Spirit and avoiding the works of the flesh. We see the condemnation of such people in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, and 21 through 23. And James chapter 1, the natural man looking in the mirror, who hears but does not do. And this is a big danger in Christianity because uh, for the majority of its history, it's been influenced by Greek ideas, especially the idea that likes to treat it as a philosophy, to treat it as an intellectual system, and to turn Christianity into fully an experience of the mind. And while there are certainly mental aspects of Christianity, Christianity was never thus understood as purely a mental exercise. From the beginning, Christianity was to lead us to follow Jesus, to practice pure and undefiled religions, James 1, 1 John 2, that it's supposed to be something experienced and lived, that it is through constant practice and effort that we truly discern these things. Uh, even in English to this day, we've maintained this idea that there's knowledge, but then there's experiential knowledge, where we can talk about saying that we knew something, but then we had some experience, and then we really understood it, or under, really knew it. We're using both concepts of knowledge there. And the Bible throughout, when speaking about knowledge, is not talking about some mere abstract intellectual fact. Instead, what it's talking about is reality, which is to be recognized and confessed in the mind, but more powerfully understood through action. Jesus is the truth. The things that are true about Jesus are not truth as much as Jesus is the truth. And so what he has said and done is the truth. And just like in a job situation where you can go through and get a degree, or you can get training to work a job, but you always learn a lot more once you're on the job and having to actually do the work on a daily basis. And that's the way it is with Christianity as well. There are lots of people who know the Bible very well, but they're not mature in the faith. Mature in the faith is not dictated by somebody who knows all the ideas, knows all the facts, and is able to effectively argue against those with whom they disagree. Uh, maturity is not defined by somebody who can win Bible trivia. 
uh, somebody who is mature may be able to do those things, but their maturity is not defined by that. Because there are a lot of people who can completely destroy Bible trivia and have all the answers and have no faith in God whatsoever. That the faith is useless to us if we're not actually doing it. We only gain this through practice. It is not immediately mastered. It is the process of sanctification. But what is it that we're doing? We have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. When it's all said and done, that's what we're trying to be as Christians. Choosing good, not evil. If we were perfect, we would choose the good over the evil. That's what we are to strive for. We are to repent and ask forgiveness when we choose the evil over the good in 1 John 1, 7 through 9. But we've, we've talked about the danger of overemphasizing knowledge to the detriment of practice. You can also do the opposite and overemphasize practice to the detriment of knowledge. We need to know what is good and what is evil. That is discerned through constant practice, but there's competing ideas out there about what's good and evil. And that is why we must root what is good and what is evil in our understanding of it in what God has revealed. Because God is our creator. He is the one who has established the universe in righteousness. And so what he defines as good is good. What he defines as evil is evil. And we have to come to that understanding by what he has made known. And we know what he has made known in the word. And you can do a lot worse than Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, as a synopsis of what that is. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If something is akin to the works of the flesh, we are to avoid it. If something is consistent with the Spirit, we are to manifest it. it. Everything else is just commentary. We know more than we like to know. We may not like it, but we certainly know in those situations what is right and what is wrong. And we pray to God for the strength to be able to overcome and to do the right and to avoid the wrong. And so, we see the need to develop discernment. And it's really a, there's a virtuous cycle, and then there is a, a less than virtuous cycle. In the virtuous cycle, we study scripture. We come to a better understanding of what God has revealed. We have a better understanding of what is good versus what is evil. We recognize better what is good and what is evil. And we're able to better choose good and uh, avoid evil. And as we choose good and avoid evil, it is easier to choose good and to avoid evil. Uh, and in so doing, we're reinforcing the conscience uh, trained by the Word of God. On the other hand, if we do not keep our minds in the Scriptures, we are tempted to stray from what God has said is good and what is evil. We are tempted by worldly logic and worldly wisdom. And we uh, prove less willing to constantly choose good and not evil. 
uh, and sometimes choose evil, uh, our conscience can be seared, that we stop feeling the guilt, we stop feeling uh, the idea that what we're doing is wrong. It becomes far harder to unlearn that sinful behavior. Our conscience has been seared and it becomes a greater stumbling block, as can be seen in 1 Corinthians 8, 7-12, and 1 Timothy 4, 1-3. And that is why we need to train our powers of discernment with constant practice to distinguish good from evil, if we would be mature in the faith. And so we can see what Hebrews 5, 12-14 is teaching us about maturity. That while we're young in the faith, we need to gain a basic understanding of the faith through our study of the scriptures, both as individuals and with our fellow Christians, through hearing the word preached, through our reading. And as we grow and develop, our understanding will be able to grow and develop as in 2 Timothy 2.15 and 2 Peter 3, verse 18. The goal is that our understanding will grow and develop to the point where we're no longer needing to subsist on the spiritual milk alone, but we can then sink our teeth into the meat of the word. And as those studies continue, our understanding of what is good and evil according to Scripture will be able to develop, and our senses will be better trained. And we continue to practice the faith and live the Christian life by manifesting the fruit of the Spirit and avoiding the works of the flesh. And thus, we're training our powers of discernment with constant practice to distinguish good from evil. But it's very important to realize in this that it never ends. At some point, we can very easily get weary because we we have progressed in the faith. And we can tell that we progress. We can see our growth. But then we, we discern through our study, through prayer, that there are elements of our lives that really are sorely lacking. And things that we hadn't even thought about earlier really don't fully manifest God's purposes. And it can lead us to despair. And we can ask, is it ever going to end? Are we ever going to get there? And uh, this may not seem encouraging, but the fact of the matter is, no, we're not going to fully make it. Until we are in Jesus' presence, we have not arrived. Until we're in the resurrection, we're not there yet. And, I, and that is to be said, not to cause despair or discouragement, but to, as a reminder that we need to keep growing. And that sometimes we just want to quit. We want to stop. It's very easy to feel that way. Or we get an inflated sense of pride and think that we've matured enough. That now we're good enough and now we can just level off. But that's not the way it works. The moment we think that we can plateau is the moment we begin to backslide. The moment we begin to degenerate and atrophy and are no longer able to glorify God because we have given up before the time. We're not going to reach perfection in the flesh. That's why we are ever to strive. And in fact, just like there are times where it takes a few cleanings to get something clean, where if you've had really bad stuff on your hands, you may have to wash your hands a few times to get to the point where you can get to some of the dirt and to get it out finally. Same with our lives. Sometimes there have to be layers of filth and layers of unrighteousness that have to be purged off and elements of our character reformed so that we can get to a certain level or now we can work on these deep issues and to, to, to get them cleansed as well. The more we learn, the more wisdom we attain, the more we realize there's more to learn and there's more wisdom to gain. And that's why that's a need for humility and recognition of our dependence upon God and the fact that we'll never be good enough. It's never been about us being good enough. We never were good enough. God has given of his Son even though we have not deserved it, and we are ever in debt to his grace and mercy and should praise him for it. And that is why we need to continue to mature into faith, no matter how long we've been a Christian. So we've seen how we can mature and develop into faith. That we study and know the Word, we gain a basic understanding, we can practice what we've learned and gain a deeper understanding. 
through our study and practice, we've discerned our, or trained our powers of discernment, excuse me, to better distinguish good and evil. And it's not done. As long as we're in this life, there's more to learn, more wisdom to gain, more senses to train. And that is why we do well to continue to mature and develop in our faith in Jesus Christ. We're again so thankful that you've joined us, and we hope that you've been encouraged by our conversation about maturing. Maybe you'd like to talk more about this. Uh, maybe you'd like to learn more about Jesus. There's other uh, sermons and discussions that you can also consider. Uh, you can also read uh, editions of The Voice and learn more about the Venice Church of Christ at venicechurchofchrist.org and also on our social media platforms. And you can also contact me directly at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.